Welcome to a live taping of the podcast Undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I'm Matthew Moore, the producer of the podcast and a reporter for KUAF Public Radio, 91.3 FM in Fayetteville. This is being recorded live, so we encourage you to clap, laugh, participate however you see fit. Today's conversation is being titled Movement Towards Freedom Now. And we are excited to have a fantastic group of panelists with us this afternoon. We have Sarah Moore, we have Monique Jones, Beth Coger. Let's give our panelists a big round of applause. And the host of Undiscipline, Dr. Karee Banton. You know, today's panel uh, takes off where our earlier panel left off. And uh, earlier you had the privilege of hearing Dr. Michael Pears talk about Nelson Hackett and his flight from slavery and how his singular experience as a fugitive helped to bring freedom uh, to many other African Americans uh, through the work of abolitionists. And so we're looking at the efforts of people who are continuing that legacy of, uh, of struggling for freedom, right? Uh, we who believe in freedom must not rest until it comes. And so we're looking at the efforts that celebrate Juneteenth now in our local community. A quick look at systemic racial inequity in the United States uh, indicates the multiplicity of ways Arkansas has been failing. Feed in America has Arkansas as the second highest food insecurity state in the country. Half a million Arkansans struggled to find enough to eat, including 165,000 children, which placed the state third for childhood hunger. According to Healthy People 2020, the primary factors of food insecurity and hunger include poverty, income, unemployment, and lack of services and Arkansas saw an increase in the gap between high-income and low-income earners. In addition, there's a shortage of affordable homes, rental homes, to extremely low-income individuals whose income are at below the poverty guideline or 30% of their median income. Many of these households are severely cost-burdened, spending more than half of their income on housing and severely cost-burdened poor households are more likely than other renters to sacrifice other necessities like healthy food and healthcare to pay rent and to experience unstable housing situations like evictions. Significantly higher percentages of black and Hispanic respondents reported being victims of discrimination while getting healthcare. In terms of education, Arkansas remains well below national average in education assessment with a widening racial achievement gap. And most alarming, I would say, is Arkansas's problem with mass incarceration. Arkansas has an incarceration rate of 942 per 100,000 people, including prisons, jails, and the increasingly ever-present immigration, detention, juvenile justice facilities as well. And this means that it locks up a higher percentage of its people than many other democracies on Earth, okay? 
Perhaps alongside that kind of alarming statistic, black men comprise only 8% of the state population. And yet the Arkansas Department of Corrections, as of 2015, reported its general population was 44% black men, 49% of those on death row were black men. As the national policy map indicates, these statistics hold even true for Northwest Arkansas that has been declared one of the most affluent areas in the USA. Consequently, Northwest Arkansas community groups have emerged to address these needs even as similar efforts have developed on university campus and subsequently, you know, have been shelved. And so, these efforts responding to these specific issues in the community and efforts to build a strong democracy and to pipeline people into the outcomes that we would like, you know, have been, you know, progressively growing. And uh, we are very interested in African and African American studies in understanding uh, the efforts of these grassroots communities, uh, the impact that they've been having and the dynamics of their organization. So I would like to welcome uh, Beth and Sarah and Monique to Undiscipline. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Let me start first with Monique. Can you tell me what inspired you to create your organization? I think it was just advocacy, advocacy for the underserved and advocacy for the individuals that don't know how to play the game and they don't know the rules of the game and they want to win. They want to be able to eat like the rest of us. They want to be able to have affordable housing. And so what I see is there's several voiceless community members, whether it's because of mobility issues, um, inclusive issues, disability issues, or racial issues, there's huge gaps. And we need advocacy in those spaces to, to be able to help them navigate these systems that were not built for us to win in the first place. Uh, same question for Beth and Sarah. How did the Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition come about? Okay, in January of 2019, uh, I was at the Washington County Corn Court meeting. Uh, I was there unaware of what was about to come up on the agenda, and I've considered myself to be well informed, but and so uh, a little background first. I, I worked for 43 years uh, as a paralegal office manager in a law firm, and we did a lot of criminal justice defense work. So that night when Sheriff Helder got up to uh, bring his proposal forward for a $38 million jail expansion, which would have added anywhere from 600 to 700 beds to our existing facility, and that was going to be financed with sales tax. Uh, I, first of all, I was shocked. I couldn't believe we were even thinking about that, but I knew that that wasn't the answer. I knew that we did not need more jail beds uh, because I had worked with people for 43 years in my, in my profession, and I knew that what we needed were to address the reasons why so many people get in the criminal justice system. That's why I was there, and it just happened that Sarah was there, and I'll let her tell that, but uh, anyway, so we met that night, and uh, out of that came this grassroots organization, Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition, and 
I'm proud to be part of that still. Well, you know, and, and we didn't invent or start anything that day that wasn't on the shoulders of the giants before us. Um, and unfortunately, um, even the work we've done, you know, today, while it's made a dent, you know, hasn't solved it all. And so there's plenty of work for all of us to do. But I think overall, though, where individuals in the community have felt compelled to step up and why you see a growing movement conversation in our state is that I think it's that straw that breaks the camel's back. You know, for so long, some of us, especially, you know, white folks that are comfortable enough, um, we're fed a lie and grow up sometimes being told that system over there is harmful and it's dangerous, just don't get entrapped in it. And so you think that somehow, you know, you're doing something and your ability that's keeping you out of it. And so I think sometimes whenever you um, open your critical thinking skills and you really start to see your full community and you hear the human stories of who's been entrapped, um, then when you're personally impacted, you know, there isn't any pocket of our community when you talk to different families, no matter what your your socioeconomic um, breakdown, who's, who's potentially been entrapped in this criminal injustice system in one way or the other, and particularly, unfortunately, um, people of color um, have more surveillance on them, um, have less, less um, economic mobility, education. And so the reason I think that our organization has continued to grow with momentum is that um, we've really tried to say that we want to be a collective voice with everyone's experience in our region and across our state um, that we identify that all Arkansans um, should be empowered to be enfranchised in every part of our state um, and we're not going to rest until that happens and so whatever we have to do like we're here for that work for the long term and I want to stay with you and your group the Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition you're concerned about mass incarceration, but in Northwest Arkansas, what spurred you into action is a specific issue. What is that issue? Well, unfortunately, it's that de facto solution or easy button approach that we see time and time again um, in our pocket of Arkansas and across the state of trying to solve um, for so many um, lack of safety net and opportunities and lack of investment with additional policing and incarceration. Um, in Washington County today, um, we feel more comfortable paying to put someone in our jail for a year of $35,000 than we see investing in them for affordable housing, um, to in improve food, food security for their families, to give them opportunities for second and third, fourth chance employment um, as they exit out of prison or a carceral setting. Um, and so, um, I think you think those are the reasons. And Monique, the direct issues that we're trying to address here in Northwest Arkansas. One of the, the direct issues that we're trying to direct, um, address in addition to the jail expansion in, is food insecurity. It's, it's prevalent. It was already there prior to the pandemic. The pandemic just exposed that people were suffering in silence with no food, having to make a decision as a elderly, do I buy my medicine or do I buy food? That shouldn't have to be a choice in our community if elderly want to eat every night. And it's, it, was, it became even worse during the pandemic that we started collaborating with community clinic. And we identified individuals that were even malnutrition because they were having to make a choice. Do I eat just one piece of bread today? Do I bite? off of a piece of bread and 
then you're trying to take care of a parent. And so me and my mom are sharing one piece of bread every day. Why is that a choice in this community today? And I saw that your organization is also partnering with immigrant, uh, immigrant um, organization as well to feed immigrant communities. That is correct. So we, we partnered through the pandemic, not just with Canopy, which is a refugee reselling community, the immigrant community, as well as Rooted, which served the Hispanic community, ACOM, the Arkansas Coalition of Marshallese, and several other community members, because it, food insecurity doesn't have a race. It doesn't have a gender. It doesn't have a socioeconomic background. Food insecurity can hit anybody, anytime, any day. But then why are children also going without eating during the summer or when there's breaks? Understand that some, most children, if we're number two in the nation, most children, when it's time for a break, you have people that are thinking about going on vacation. Well, they're worried that their only meal that they eat every week is at school. And so now there's anxiety that's sitting in that we're going to be out for summer break all summer. And now you have to worry about not having any access to food. I appreciate the fact that the school districts are now addressing food insecurity during summer times and summer breaks. But this should have been happening prior to the pandemic because these same children were wondering what were they going to be able to eat during the summertime. Well, and that goes back into investments in our children and our families because Mm -hmm. as a state in Arkansas saying that we care about families and we're pro-life, but oftentimes those investments, again, are going to carceral settings and not necessarily in the family. One of the really neat studies that's circulating right now that Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families is putting out there that folks should Google for and look at our website, I'm sorry, our Facebook, we've reshared it because it's staggering. Behavioral um, uh, instances of, of acting out and, and instances of school discipline actually went down after we invested in feeding kids after the bell. So meeting their food needs in schools has decreased the need for um, other alternatives to to deal with uh, kids that are showing their trauma, showing their lack of or of have being to fed. encounter the school resource officer, where you know that creates that pipeline for them to be in the carceral system. Absolutely. Yeah. So there, you all have plenty as justice organization. You have plenty in common. Uh, but maybe Beth, uh, in terms of the Northwest Arkansas community. Uh, This issue of mass incarceration, this effort to expand the jail system, um, where does NWA and Arkansas, you know, stand relative to Arkansas and the U.S. on a whole? Uh, well, in my opinion, right now, we're kind of falling in line with what, uh, you know, the state is wanting to expand. It's been built a new prison at Calico Rock. I think the last time it was uh, $60 million. It, I, That's the one number that I heard. Th- that's because we have a surplus right now with state funds. But uh, that's how they're looking at that. And instead of using that money to where we could address the root causes of why so many people are in our jails, Uh, But also, I think that Washington County and Benton County right now are falling in line with that, too, because our jail's overcrowded. But why is our jail overcrowded? Do people ever ask that question? Uh, So if we look at the people who are in our jail, uh, the majority of people are there pretrial, which means they haven't been found guilty of of anything. And they under our Constitution, uh, you know, uh, they're to be assumed innocent. 
uh, but right now I see Benton County and Washington County and Arkansas falling in line because they're defaulting to something that they've all always done yes. so our, our jail is overcrowded oh my gosh we need to build a bigger jail we need so one of the things that arkansas justice reform uh one of our, our sort of our slogan when we were uh, advocating to use the cares money to address some of these issues that we're talking about is uh no more cage uh ca care not cages mm -hmm. and care not care not, not no i we didn't make that up we copied it from someone but uh <laughs> but that's still true i mean if we we could use those resources that we have. And I think that that's one of the things we do is we try to educate people about that. It seems like there's an approach, right? Is it Field of G Dreams, the movie that says, if you build it, they'll come, right? So it's like, if we you hear build that. the jail, oh, you're gonna find efforts to incarcerate people and to criminalize certain behaviors in order to justify the spending of all that. How much did you say? They're willing to spend? Well, the state of Arkansas, I think theirs was $60 million. In Washington County, we heard last week that it's $95 million, but it'll be more. I mean, and that's just a number they threw out. In Benton County, I think it's 204000 right now. $204 million. I mean, $204 million, I'm Which sorry. It started oh my God, out at two hundred and forty. Yeah, it's hard to th say that number. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, wow. But, wow. And they're talking about sales tax to finance all that. <sighs> Well, and going back to saying, like, if you build it, they will come. The thing is, is this is not like this is a, a, a new dynamic that, you know, has suddenly, you know, come to everybody that, oh, okay, well, if you build gel beds, we're going we're gonna to fill them. The Department of Justice, the National Institute of Corrections, all of these experts that our decision makers are tasked with working in collaboration with our taxpayer dollars have been telling um, and laying out a jail planning capacity guide that's saying, if you build these jail beds, you will fill them. You have to make determinations and have those thoughtful conversations in your community about what is safety look like. And how are you gonna use each of those beds, make those determinations and hold yourself accountable? Because if you have a jail bed, you will fill it. And the additional complexity to that is if you have a jail bed um, available, you have the ability to, to say, you know, am I gonna sell that jail bed? And so suddenly, are we in the business of gelling? You know, what, are, what is our goal and what are communities really trying to accomplish? Right, yes. Yeah. So um, it's very interesting and, and, and the, the reality of it, the, 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 the kind of bizarre nature of it is what happened during COVID. Tell us what happened with the, the incarceration rate during COVID that stands against what these efforts are now being, that are now being put forward. Well, in Washington County, um, we have a 710 bed facility. Um, and over the last couple, uh, two or three years, um, it historically has um, had a population um, anywhere from uh, uh, right at capacity up to 800. And so when COVID hit, it was hovering somewhere around 750 to 800 on a routine basis. And by about March, April of 2020, um, all it took was no investment of money, but a policy decision change uh, within all of the folks that are part of the criminal system, so judges and prosecutors, um, the public defenders, the sheriff, to make the determination that we more than halved the jail population. That means we had jail beds empty in Washington County in April of 2020, and community safety did not suffer for that. 
So it's been done before. So just like that, COVID hit, Overnight. a new world became possible. Absolutely. Zero dollar investment. And there was no crime spree, and it stayed down below between 300 and 350 until January of 2021. 350 from Between 300 and 350 until January 2021, and that's when it started creeping, creeping back, back up. up. Because wow. of policy change. Yes. Because of policy change. Yes. With a stroke of a pen. Wow. And so, uh, Monique, in terms of uh, food insecurity and hunger, you know, I go back to the couple who died in the park in the winter, you know, in this very affluent community. How does NWA as a community stand relative to the state and to the United States where food insecurity and the issue of, of, uh, of hunger is concerned? Well, in Northwest Arkansas, there are still issues. We are still um, in the pandemic, whether you believe it or not. Um, I had an individual that volunteers and usually helps us check in on every week. Well, he didn't show up, so I had to take his job. But it also allows me to connect with the community and see who we're serving. So we are in Fayetteville, but we serve Washington, Benton, Carroll, and Madison County. And what was eye-opening for me is I was checking in individuals in Fayetteville that were driving from Harrison, from West Fork, from Elkins, from Prairie Grove, from Lincoln, from Centerton to come to Fayetteville to get food. Wow. At, at these gas prices. So <laughs> just understand that's a double hit. Wow. Because you're gonna now drive that far to get food. But there's a reason um, because a lot of individuals think that the pandemic's over, go to work, get a job, feed your family, but that we can't look at it that way. I've even had people say to me, "How? when are you gonna stop giving out these welfare boxes? Oh, wow. How can we give back the dignity to someone that's trying to be a caregiver for their family? Whether it's your children, your parents, your spouse. My husband during the pandemic had two strokes and I became a caregiver for him and my child with a special need that was going to school online. I needed that same support. So how do we give back that dignity? And that's going and meeting them where they are, seeing and understanding what the needs are. And I'm just something simple. During the pandemic, I made a decision to no longer give out dry goods, purchase and give out dry goods, specifically dry beans. Because there's a way you have to cook them. You have to soak them. And then you, then when they, you do ingest them, they're hard on your body. And so everybody doesn't have access to a home to cook dry, dry goods like that. And then everybody doesn't have access to uh, a restroom. Mm -hmm. So you if have you're to be homeless, constantly aware of these connected issues that's of right. insecurity. Mm -hmm. That's right. So you, you have to meet receive and understand. And one thing that I do is I see them as a person. So just meeting them, getting to know their name, their family, their dietary needs. And like you said, when we're serving individuals from a different country that are international, I can't just say here, take this food, because I found in the work that I do that a lot of international students don't even eat canned goods. They want fresh fruit and fresh produce. 
that drives me to say, what can I do differently to buy more fresh produce, to make sure that I procure that for my community? If I know we have a community of refugees, immigrants, and international students, so now what, what happens when you start buying fresh? More money that we have to spend. During the pandemic, we spent up to $3,500 a week, every week, to purchase food in order to feed the community. Some of that was grants, and a lot of that was from benevolent offerings, not just from our church, but different church and different community members that stepped up to say, we see what you're doing, and we want to support you financially in order to make sure our community is fed. So staying with that, um, you mentioned a couple of different demographics that I'm sure COVID had significant effect on, um, you know, immigrants, you know, students, uh, African Americans, how can you say how this issue of food insecurity affect African Americans in particular and other minority groups or demographics that it, this issue affects as well? COVID hit the minority and African American community very hard, hard and fast. Like we had no idea how it would impact minorities and um, lower income at a level that we weren't even ready for. During the pandemic, I worked for the unemployment office and I saw several individuals from different backgrounds coming in because they worked in a factory, that they were exposed to the pandemic at a different level. And we, yeah, the government waived the waiting period during the pandemic, but if you don't understand the process, how do you complete the application? Like you, you have to be able and available for work in order to get unemployment. And then you go into the office and say, I have COVID and I'm the caregiver of my family and I need to apply for unemployment. And the first question is, are you able and available to work? Well, no, I have COVID and I can't go in. So you're not available to work? Denied. That hit communities harder than anybody ever knew it was gonna hit. Communities that are working in chicken factories and working closely with other individuals where they were consistently passing it mm -hmm. and they are not then not able to qualify un for unemployment. Mm -hmm. Because and so, of that particular restriction. That's right, because of the restriction and now how do you feed your family? Right. So you, you're, you can't work because you're on a two-week isolation. You can't get un unemployment. So what do you do? You seek out other resources in your community. I am grateful that we have the Northwest Arkansas Food Bank, which works with the government. And it, at a higher level, I'd like to see us work more with agriculture, work more with farm, farmers and farmer markets, because they were hit as well. And how do we move this dollar within our community to support them? So buying from the farmers and getting that back into the community and then just circulating that dollar to make sure everybody is fed and everybody is economically supported throughout this pandemic. But it definitely hit minorities and African-Americans harder and so part of that is we offered a lot of COVID testing. We offered vaccines. Just up to last week, I did a three-week boosters at our food pantry because I know if you're going to come out for food, why don't I connect those two resources, those vaccinations and that food insecurity? I'm here to, to make sure that you have that access. Why don't we work on removing barriers 
you, you now had to drive over here to get food and you had to come back to get your booster. Why can't we just get it all in one place? And so for Beth and Sarah as well, I mean, you know, I think in the popular imagination, we have an idea of nationally how mass incarceration affects African-Americans, right? Michelle Alexander's wonderful book, The New Jim Crow, you know, explores that, how the prison, uh, the prison industrial complex has become a new system that uses incarceration as a way to disenfranchise and uh, dehumanize African-Americans. How does mass incarceration in Northwest Arkansas affect African-Americans and what other populations are you all seeing? Well, I mean, we had a, a really uh, big conversation in August of 2020 in Fayetteville, Arkansas, you know, one of the biggest progressive pockets in the state who oftentimes feels like um, we're unique um, to other areas of the country or unique to the rest of the state. You know, I will say, um, again, as, a, as listeners are, are hearing, I'm a, I'm a white woman. Um, I'm a mom with school-age elementary kids. And I oftentimes thought in the past, um, before I really dug in and started this work, um, very well-meaning, well-intentioned, that um, black children, especially you know, young children who had seen police officers carry off their family members, um, in their you know apartment complexes and the neighborhoods that they lived in, they just needed to see a good guy in the the school, and that way that could change that relationship. I really did buy into that. I was well-meaning. crime just takes a you know seeing a, a, a mentor. <laughs> correct, correct, yeah. and it was well-meaning and well-intentioned. So I don't I don't want to tongue lash individuals that have that viewpoint. What I want to say is 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 open your mind and widen your mind to this conversation because what happened in august of 2020 was that um we wanted uh fayetteville schools wanted to expand the school resource officer program to put that into the middle schools so kids who typically are going through develop lots of de developmental change who are struggling with things with their body with how they interact with their peers who have um, bigger disturbances behaviorally we were looking to police them more and so when we we actually looked at the the school resource officers that are um, in the schools uh, today in Fayetteville, um, we said, you know, what impact do they have on those students? And when we looked at the numbers, it was surprising to the school resource officers, to our mayor, Jordan, to the chief of police, Mike Reynolds, that we disproportionately, and, and I was naively unaware of the fact that over the last five years at that point in time, we had arrested 100 children in our schools which, you know, that's a place where they should feel safe. If you don't feel safe and nurtured and cared for, I don't know how you're supposed to learn, and education is the pathway um, out. It's the, the, the way to um, economic mobility. It's the, the pathway to opportunity. And so we were disenfranchising those students because those 100 kids were fearful to go to school, obviously. Um, but also the alarming thing was the makeup. Um, only 11% of the school children in Fayetteville Public Schools at the time were black, but over half of those arrested were black. And so we had an issue, 
and we were doing something well-meaning. You know, we thought we were protecting those kids and we were taking care of our kids, but we were harming them. And so we really have to shake ourselves and we have to hold each other accountable when we find that we're creating harm. Um, we have to come together and we have to change that. So um, our organization and many black and brown voices came forward. Um, I will never forget the stories I heard. Um, I think they're etched on my heart forever. Um, but I, th I think that those are the places that we really see where that impact starts. When we don't invest appropriately in the resources that we're giving to these black and brown children, especially that are coming in potentially already harmed by these oppressive systems that exist in our state, when we don't meet them with love, with care, with appropriate resources, and instead we criminalize their normal behavior, we just fuel that school to prison pipeline. And that's where it all begins. And if a child is not reading proficiently by the third grade, the higher propensity they have to end up in prison is astronomical. It's mind blowing. And so I just scratch my head when I look at my local counties, looking at spending, you know, 200, uh, possibly 300 million across two counties, um, and then the millions more every year that will all play in perpetual tax year after year that never goes away to maintain and operate that. Why in the world can our school districts, can our counties and our cities not invest in helping those families? Instead, we want to criminalize. Yeah, but uh, there's a bottom line to that, right, as to the reason why. And it speaks to both of you all's grassroots efforts where we're talking to an audience and we're like, how do we get these people to see? And it has to do with narratives, the narratives that we have about African-Americans and black people. Oh, they're on welfare. Go get a job. You know, you're taking up resources, right? Or, you know, the, the long narrative that has been painted about black people being criminals, right, um, from the end of slavery uh, up until now. So I imagine that's a very, you know, big issue um, where we're uh, the the carcical system becomes a ready solution because that 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 uh, that narrative is you know there to justify it and to you know act as a barrier for food insecurity. So what are, what are you calling for specifically, Monique? What are you what do you want? And I know you are running for office, right? So I mean, I am. yeah. I am. So we gonna hold you accountable That's too right. when you get That's up in there. That's right. I am. <laughs> I am on the ballot for in November for the House of Representatives for District 18, and I am running on the issues of improving our issues that we have to tackle hunger and food insecurity. But that starts with our ag. It starts at the legislative level of funding that we receive in order to pour back into our schools and our communities and food and um, food pantries. The other issues that I'm running on is school improvement. And I would like to see not just a good school, but great schools in Arkansas, which address those issues that are not being addressed until after they get out of school, which is mental health. It's providing that funding to source right into the schools of social work. Therefore, the teacher can teach. Why does this teacher have to be the mental health provider, the social worker, and the teacher? Why are we not using those dollars that we're talking about using to build jails in order to address those issues earlier in schools that would allow the teachers to stay focused on the, the schoolwork 
and make sure that we have those supportive systems in the schools for the teachers, as well as the food. Why, why can't we start talking about all the issues as opposed to just talking about the child that's disrupting the class? Why are we not drilling down and saying, well, did he even eat breakfast today? Well, are they homeless? Do they have somewhere to stay? These are some other issues. Are they struggling with mental health? Are they struggling with mental health? Self-esteem, all that. All of this. And, and I can tell you as a mother of a 15-year-old, I was very shocked that when I took her for an annual visit, the one question I had never heard the nurse ask, and she said that they are required to ask in the state now, is are you suicidal? Why, how are we addressing that in the schools? Is that a teacher's responsibility to be taking on that much weight to take care of her students and teach them. So I really want to talk about what great schools look like and how do we fund that to make sure we're supporting our teachers, our educators, other than just putting another SRO in the school. Mm -hmm. What does that pipeline look like That's to produce right. the results that we want? The mm -hmm. food, That's right. the mental health piece, That's right. all of those things all have those to, things you know, rather than not address them and then lock them away. That is correct. So what are you calling for, Beth? and uh, Sarah. Uh, right now, uh, we're calling for a five-year moratorium on jail expansion, and, uh, but we're also calling on uh, addressing the root causes of why we have so many of our neighbors, our friends and neighbors, locked away in a jail cell. Uh, we want to address uh, um, mental health. We want to expand pretrial services. Well, expand we want to have pre-trial services right now they call ankle monitors as pre-trial services that's ridiculous we want a really a robust pre-trial uh, service program we want to well this the crisis stabilization unit closed on june 30th of last year and it's still closed uh, we want to get mental health court started as a diversion diversionary court we've asked that we establish a sobering center uh, we want to expand drug court. Uh, all these, basic, we want to address the root causes of why. But, and like we were talking about just now, how it all feeds together. Like, if a child's hungry, how are they going to learn? If they, and if they don't have a place to sleep, if they're sleeping in a car. I mean, so all that ties together to why we have so many people in our jail right now. Well, and, and bigger than that, it's really challenging those that are currently in power, those that we've elected that are our leaders. So really, local government official, political Absolutely. Leaders, People yeah. um, that are faith leaders in our community or thought yes, leaders. Especially them. We're lo we are looking at them right now, absolutely. Because I think, I think that many faith communities um, have calls to action within the text and within um, what those belief systems are and and to really see their faith in action is what we're we're definitely looking for but you know all of those folks um, across the state that are more enfranchised that have that seat at the table what we're saying is that we want to see greater progress and more investment in getting out into our communities, accessing these vulnerable populations and having robust and meaningful conversation and dialogue about what issues these families and these individuals are facing, um, how they're the experts, how they wanna solve them. 
And then let's do a bottom up. Um, Arkansas, too often, we do a top-down decision-making. And the experts are out there in our communities, and the solutions are there. Um, that's really uh, what's driving the things that um, uh, Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition is advocating for, are when we're working directly with impacted um, folks that you know we know and are related to, um, who reach out to us in the community. And so um, we think the solutions are within within the rooms um, and so investing in things like uh, what Beth was saying with you know mental health and recovery services um, one of the words that's being used in our state and Little Rock right now as they're talking is the biggest crisis facing our state is mental health um, and in this region in Northwest Arkansas which is so affluent as we've talked to uh, before we have less mental health resources than when the pandemic started how is that possible in this backyard to one of the biggest employers in the nation, one of the most pristine and, 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 and renowned museums in all of the land? How are we allowing that in our backyard? Because that is a, should be a human right and a human dignity that we would always have that as a basic service to any of our community members, and yet we're failing in that and so many other areas. I, w I just wanted to speak to that. Um, um because food insecurity has opened the eyes for a lot of faith-based organizations. And I was intentional. Um, St. James has been around 156 years, and they have been serving the community, all the community, for a long period of time. And my goal was not to do that alone. So I was thinking, why don't we put the religion down, and why don't we check in with each other. So we have partnered with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Lutherans, the Methodists. It doesn't have a face. Food insecurity doesn't have a religion. And if we all come together and use our same resources to pool to help our community, we're better together. And that, that has also made them aware of how much food insecurity has been impacting not just their community, but everybody across this community. Yeah. Goes to you know my next question about barriers. You know, are we going to be seeing religion? Well, this person is Muslim. This person is an immigrant. They probably came here illegally. They don't deserve services. What kind of barriers are we seeing to solving this issue from a you know local government community? legal, you know, perspective. I'm, I'm going to start on food, food insecurity. Uh, transportation is a huge barrier. Transportation. I, I moved here from Dallas-Fort Worth, and we need to improve our local transportation because we don't have mass transportation here. We don't have regional transportation here. And I am grateful for both Sarah and Beth, who have stepped up and other, several other community members just showed up and said, my, I've identified my community needs 10 food boxes. If they come to us and they ask, we will build it and they will take it. So we have um, developed a delivery system within our community using community members who are using their own resources, not federal funding, not government funding, not state funding, out of their pocket. They're coming to pick up food boxes to get them to their community. That was one way, but I, I am grateful that I've locally partnered with 211 and United Way. And so if someone is food insecure and they live within 10 miles of 115 South Willow, 
uh, in Fayetteville, which is where the food pantry is located, I have partnered with Door um, 211 that we could deliver them a food box once a week if they're immobile, they have mobility issues, if they have transportation issues, if they just don't have a way to come and get food, DoorDash will deliver that food box oh, wow. once a week for free. Shout out to DoorDash. For free. But that's a partnership and building better together from 211, United Way, DoorDash and Lyft, and St. James Food Pantry. And there's several other community members that have taken advantage of that because if we identify that the barrier is transportation, then why don't we get it to them? So transportation is your largest barrier? Is Lar there any, it's a are large any barrier. others? Top three barriers. Mm. I think income. I want to go back to the fact that during the pandemic, there was child tax credit that was given to a lot of families. Okay, yeah. And we took that away. People were able to breathe. We tell them they, we want them to thrive, but they just got to a point that they were surviving. And we go, give me that child tax credit back. You don't need that. That's extra money. But they were actually making their way out of the pandemic and finally getting some footing. And I think as a state that we could still offer some child tax credit that will help families that are struggling through the pandemic. So that money, that, that nearly $300 million could go to Arkansas with all the issues that are here, offering some, you know, continuing to offer child, the child tax credit, which has halved po poverty, right? That was the, the research that came out. So what about Beth and Sarah? What are some of these barriers that you see from a you know, legal community, you know, governmental perspective or any other perspective? Well, I mean, one of the things um, in the state of Arkansas for, for people that are court involved is that unfortunately the court system and, and our jails and prisons are filled with people that are just in poverty. Um, and so um, many people think that, you know, we say, you know, you're entitled to, to an attorney. And so here, if you've gotten tripped up and you've already had the discretion of a police officer who's gone ahead and said, I'm going to charge you, the prosecutors looked at it and they've had discretion. They said, I'm going to charge you. So your only line of defense is now going to be our state public defender system um, that, you know, state funded um, for someone to, to defend you in a court of law so that you can can plead your case that you know you're innocent that you want to put up a fight our state public defender commission is woefully underfunded um, we very much undervalue um, in the state of Arkansas making sure that people that are poor have appropriate and adequate defense and we scratch our heads with the alarming rate of folks that get uh, lengthy sentences lengthy probation and parole um, but unfortunately, while some of the attorneys that are public defenders are absolutely incredible individuals and great attorneys, um, the American Bar Association says that an adequate amount of felony cases on someone's desk is about 150 felony cases. In Washington and Benton County, um, historically, they have around 500 or greater felony cases on their desks. And also, to keep in mind as well, um, they're woefully underpaid for these positions. So we make them work way harder than anybody in private practices and other places they can be an attorney. Um, and then on top of it, we bury them. Um, and so- um, What does that mean for somebody? If I were, uh, 
dear God, I hope Mike will bail me out if anything. But uh, if anything were to happen, and I call this woefully under, you know, paid and overworked um, public defender, what what happens to the, you know? So there's actually been an empirical study done um, out of the University of Chicago, and um, it had a, a very good sample size, and and the findings were. Uh, unfortunately, what you would think is that people ended up spending a higher rate of incarceration in pretrial. So again, you're innocent, right? So these are innocent people locked up, can't buy their freedom. And that higher rate of being stuck in jail while you're waiting to um, uh, have your court proceed ended up giving those individuals a worse outcome. So if they were found guilty, they actually are also given uh, lengthier and harsher sentences. So it, we, we create the system. The system is doing, you know, exactly, um, you know, what it's been put together for. Um, and so it just feeds itself. So the underfunding of indigent defense in the state, um, and, and bear in mind, you know, we, at the blink of the eye, the governor was ready to spend 60 to 100 million on 500 new prison beds in Calico Rock. But if we could adequately fund the public defender's office, um, these folks make somewhere around $60,000 a year. Um, if you do, you know, the quick math, $120,000 for two positions, we have 75 counties. If you put two of those positions across those 75 counties, you see really quickly that that's not an investment like the prison system. And so uh, knowing that there are studies and research out there, data-backed uh, solutions that say if you would invest in this, you would have less people going to prison, less people staying in your local county jails and in your state prison system. Why in the world would we not invest in that? What's, to go on what Sarah just said, like in Washington County, uh, one of the things that came back from our criminal justice assessment study was that the the public defender should be on parity with the prosecutors. That has not happened. Uh, in Washington County, we spend around eight, seven to 800000 more with, for the prosecutor's office than we do the public defender's office. But talking about barriers, one thing the AJRC sees as barriers and that we work to correct is education. We want the community to know to, about the, who's in our jail and why are they there? Because when we tell people that around 80% of the people in our jail are there pretrial, they're shocked. When we find out that a bond is uh, $2,500, but you have to have $250 to buy your freedom, th sh people are shocked to hear that. And so one thing that we work to do is to uh, make people aware of, of what is happening just down the road from us on Highway 71. And uh, that AJRC, I think we've been very good at that. Uh, but another barrier that, that we face too, and I was talking to someone about this today since I got here, is that people are so, are working so hard just to get by, you know, that it's hard for them to be engaged in the community like, like we need them to be. What about for women? Are, are the barriers, uh, um, do women suffer more where the criminal justice system is concerned? Are there more barriers where women are concerned? We definitely should should be looking at how many women are in jail in Washington and Benton County. Um, in Washington County in particular, um, we've seen a triple-digit increase um, in women in our county jail. Um, from 1990 to 2018, um, it grew... Um, 
1100 uh, percent um and so uh if why you, is that i'm sorry why 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 that well astonishing growth no rate? we well we should look at you know it's a national growth rate that women are ending up at a higher rate now in jails and in the prison system and, and we really should ask that question um i will say in the conversations that have happened with some of the prosecutor races and we've talked about um victims and we've talked about um, domestic violence situations when we've talked about um, sex trafficking um, unfortunately what happens is especially um, women um, end up um, entangled with uh, individuals be it through domestic violence situations and maybe when they call the police um, or when uh, the police are, are interacting with their situation while they've been a victim and a part of a situation they become criminalized um, and this is this is a widespread issue across the state. We see it in Northwest Arkansas, um, oftentimes with women who have been sex trafficked. And yes, in the state of Arkansas, we have a human trafficking issue. Um, it's right under our noses. And uh, oftentimes, these women are um, uh, addicted to drugs that they've been, you know, fed to begin with, and then they they have a drug habit. Um, and then at some point, maybe they entangle with a dr local drug task force, really well-funded drug task force. They're very vulnerable. Um, and then potentially they're asked to be, become a criminal informant uh, so that they don't face prison time. And they're very scared because they've been trafficked and they, they're very vulnerable. Um, and it puts them in really bad situations where they potentially can be harmed themselves and be further victimized. And I mean, childcare issues as well for women to leave your child. You don't can't pay for childcare to go to court. Transportation, as Monique mentioned as well, um, are big hurdles for these people, right, Monique? I want to mention one other issue, and um, it's because we still think we're out of the pandemic. Is one was access to internet and Wi-Fi. So when the court shut down, everything was on Zoom everybody didn't have access to internet in their homes and everybody didn't know how to get on zoom so then you don't get on then you get an fta which is a failure to appear then you have more money added to your fine and a failure to appear is a new felony charge in the state of arkansas for people felony that don't charge. that's a felony charge yes because you didn't get on zoom now you have a felony wow and you can go to prison for that so there are uh, multiplicity of reasons you might, I might not show up. Hang on Chris. a second. You can go to prison. You can have a felony on your case because you didn't get on a Zoom call in time. Correct. I could have a felony. We all oh, could. Yeah. Oh, so, I, know I would because I'd be late. Well, everybody who's listening, have you missed a doctor's appointment? Have you missed a dental appointment? Have you forgotten to go to your chiropractor, your, your school conference meeting? Felony. So it's 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 that easy, unfortunately, and and that brings up kind of a, another conversation that we have. I'm glad you went there because we're going to end with solution, and I need reminders. I need reminders. I like when my doctor's office call me, text me. You know, do we have that with the court system? Unfortunately, we don't have a very widespread. We're starting to dip our toe in the water in the state of Arkansas in certain certain areas, but we definitely have room for improvement. Beth touched on this earlier, but robust pretrial services. This is something that's been happening um, since the 90s pretty robustly in other parts of the nation. It's another thing from Department of Justice that's a best practice. Pretrial services basically is, is case management. It's trying to reward the behavior that we want, saying, you know, what are going to be the hurdles and the barriers that 
are going to keep you from getting to your court appearance. Let me give you a court reminder. Oh, you know, you had a drug charge and you're interested in recovery services. Let me get you in touch with somebody that can provide that service to you. Oh, you're going to have trouble getting to your court date. Let me work on getting you a ride or find a volunteer that can take you to your court date. And so, you know, our organization, while we have been critical of the system, we've offered lots of solutions. Um, our organization brought the Bell Project to town, um, who's working to end mass incarceration, especially focused on um, ending the cash bail system. Um, but Definitely, you know, robust pretrial services would have the ability, we were just talking about failure to appears about, and, and so pretrial services would offer you that reminder. Somebody would call or would text and remind you. Unfortunately, um, in Washington and Benton counties and many places in the state, we're holding people in jail to make their court appearance because they failed to appear at one of their court. And let me tell you, the court appearance people miss so often is called an arraignment. It's your second appearance. So it's after you've had your bond hearing, so you've bonded out, say, and you need to come into the courtroom and for some reason, we have a must appear in Arkansas when you really don't need to be there. You should be able to file a piece of paper or have an attorney tell them not guilty. So because you've missed your arraignment, that second appearance to go say for two seconds, not guilty, you can have another felony. And that oftentimes is an area that we trip up. So we what imagine if you were calling your uh, public defender who has 500 cases on his desk and you're like, uh, no, nobody, nobody answers. Correct. And you don't know. You don't know when you're supposed to go. And we've heard that from, from many folks that say they've called and they've called and they've called the public defender's office because they're not sure when their court date was, but they never were able to connect with their public defender. It's not because their public defender doesn't care. They're yeah. just overburdened. Overworked. But, but we solve for that by putting people in jail, again, and give them a bed, um, sometimes up to 200 people, usually 100 to 200 people in Washington or Benton County because they've missed their court appearance. And so we had the ability that we could simply go into the jails and we could say, why did you miss your court appointment? And you know what? We would get a lot of good data. We would hear things like, I didn't have a ride. Or I called my, my buddy Bob and Bob said he was going to be there. And then I called him an hour later and then the next hour. Or I hitchhiked from, you know, rural Oklahoma to get to Fayetteville, Arkansas, and it just took me a little longer, and so I totally missed my court date, and so now I sit in the jail. Um, we, we did some live calling, Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition, um, when the pandemic started, and we had gone to this Zoom court, and, and there was a lot of confusion, and it did give us um, individual stories of what people were facing. You know, single parents who had childcare concerns. We were during COVID and they were worried about showing up at the courthouse and were like, well, I guess my buddy can watch my child. Well, I think that, again, that doesn't keep my community safe, right? So it seems like I could move their court date until their partner has custody of the child and then they could show up for court. And that keeps the child safe and the whole community safe. Um, and so, um, so those are those are some of the solutions that we could see that could happen that would free up jail beds. Yeah. It would not um, harm community safety, and overall, would actually improve community safety because you would you would stabilize families. You wouldn't be um, causing a disruption. There's solid data and research out there that say that even a day spent in jail is so disruptive to folks because, you know, especially we talked about people who are working shift work that are in poultry plants or, or they have jobs that have like demerit systems. 
I mean, one missed shift is enough for somebody to lose their job. And whenever people don't have enough emergency um, money to pay for a hundred dollar expense, they can't they can't lose their job and miss an entire paycheck. I mean, students drop out of school for that amount of money too, so it's quite understandable. What Sarah just said, but also. Um, so many people in our jail have mental health issues and as I said earlier Washington County closed its uh, crisis stabilization unit June 30th of last year we should all be ashamed that that happened there was no reason for it to happen we have the money to we, we had the money to keep it going so now is in the process hopefully of being open in mid-July we hear but we've been we've been told that other things that we need to do is it would help if we had uh, um, social workers at the jail real social workers who were there full-time during office hours anyway to to uh, help people connect when they're released from jail to help them connect to services that they need uh, we keep track of the jail census and during any month there from 95 to 100 people a day are in our jail listing with an address of homeless are at 1832 South School Street which is the address for Seven Hills um, those are things and also uh, one thing the AJRC has been pushing for is to have classes education classes in the jail and life school classes in the jail and we were getting we were getting close to that before COVID hit but uh, th those are things that, that I can think of. Monique? Well, I, I want to say that collaboration is huge. So St. James um, started another nonprofit, and so I'm the director over the Squire Jahagan Outreach Center, as well as I also run CPR NWA, which is case management and life coaching. Because when someone is drowning, that's the last thing they want to talk about is a budget. Like you want to help people and connect them to resources rather than say you need to do this, you need to do this, and you need to do that. And so when I look at it overarching, it, start, it starts in a little rock. It starts with our legislature. You cannot qualify for SNAP and or um, food stamps if you have saved in your bank more than 12, is it $12,500 or $1,200? $1, so my question is, what happens when an emergency comes? If you can't save money, because if you save money, you'll cut off your food stamps. But if you don't save money, then you, you, we're keeping the poor poor. And so I think we are also one of the only states that has a limit that you can save in your bank account to disqualify you also from SNAP benefits. Take the limits off of it. We need to remove those limits because also I hear even, like I said, from the elderly, they get and they're like, well, my Social Security went up by $10, therefore they took five more dollars away from my food stamps and I'm 67 years old and I get $15 in food stamps a month. This is how we're treating our community. We're treating our elderly like we're gonna penalize you because there's inflation, Social Security goes up and we're gonna take away more of your food stamps. And so these are the same individuals that are coming from week to week to say, how can I get food? So I want to make sure that we also have access to the agricultural m monies that are available, not just for 
the food banks, but for the farmers. I want to collaborate with farmers and the farmers markets. I know that the farmers market offer anyone 60 and older, if they come over to buy vouchers, they'll match it. So if you buy $50 worth of food vouchers for the farmer market and you fill out an application, they'll give you an extra 50 that you can spend throughout the end of the year. Connecting people with those type of resources is life-changing. And so I want to be that go-to when you have issues with hunger, homelessness, or poverty, because we want to be able to connect you with those resources in order to move the needle to get you from surviving to thriving. Well, I'd like to thank uh, Beth, Monique, and Sarah. Thank you so much for this um, very much needed conversation and, and information session for the community on the issues that we uh, are facing here and the kinds of community that we are creating. If we are saying that we're going to be the new Austin, who is included in that vision, right? This cannot just be the vision of University of Arkansas and the corporate folks, you know, the people who are the, the least of these, as, as we call them, you know, has to be included in that as well, or else we're going to have an even bigger problem on our hands. So, we want to thank the Arkansas Justice Reform Coalition and the St. James Food Pantry for being uh, upholding the spirit of Juneteenth and continuing the struggle for freedom in our current day. So and thank you all to the audience for coming to this live taping. Thanks so much for joining us today. Don't forget, you can find previous episodes of Undisciplined on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, that's where you'll find Undisciplined. Thank you so much for coming out today and have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks so much. Thank you.